and welcome to Filibustering History, a podcast series where we discuss what historians do with their lives. From the literal hub of Western civilization, known to outsiders as Columbus, Ohio, I am Rob Denning, lead faculty for the history programs at Southern New Hampshire University's College of Online and Continuing Education. Joining me from the far west, in a distant outpost of Western civilization, is James Fennessy, the Associate Dean of Faculty for History at SNHU. Today, James and I are talking to Dr. Aaron Greenwald, who is the Curator of Programs for the New Orleans Museum of Art. Yet another distant outpost of Western civilization. I mean, yeah, San Francisco and New Orleans are fine for cultural and artistic endeavors, but, you know, hey, Columbus is, uh, it's right up there with, with those two. Anyway, we're going to talk about Dr. Greenwald's background, her career in public history, and a bit about the social and political contexts in which public historians operate. What is your name and what do you do? My name is Erin Greenwald, and I'm the Curator of Programs at the New Orleans Museum of Art. Erin and I went to Ohio State together. When did you graduate? Was it 20... Because I graduated in 2011. I think you graduated so, before me, though, right? No. So I left um, Ohio State in 2007 when I was ABD. So I finished candidacy exams with Alan Gillet and was desperate to not be a graduate student anymore. <laughs> yeah, I know that. <laughs> um, I, meaning I, I wanted <clears throat> to finish my dissertation, but I was tired of living in the graduate student economy. Yeah. So I started looking for a job in New Orleans um, right after finishing candidacy. I taught one semester after exams and then was fortunate enough to find a job in New Orleans, which is great because my work at the time was centered on Louisiana in the territorial period. So between the Louisiana Purchase in 1803 and um, statehood in 1812, looking at the free people of color in New Orleans um, specifically. And I found a job, I found an editing job. It was called Exhibitions Editor. It was a new position at the Historic New Orleans Collection. Got the job and came down to New Orleans with my two-year-old and my husband. Started at the collection, quickly realized this was a very, very different world. Um, and wondered why we, as graduate students, had not really even been exposed to possibilities really outside of academia. I think that's changing, mm -hmm. um, but that certainly wasn't the case when you and I were at Ohio State. So yeah. I ended up um, switching dissertation topics because of a fortunate find um, within the archives at the Historic New Orleans Collection and writing my dissertation while working full-time, and oh. once I had finished, I I became a curator at the collection. Uh, they're a museum research center and publisher, and I have been fortunate enough to work in all aspects of those areas, um, and I was there until just last May, and I transitioned to the New Orleans Museum of Art. And what are you doing at the museum now? So I'm the curator of programs at the New Orleans Museum of Art. I work with the other content curators to develop lecture series, symposia, hire live music for openings. Um, I curate film series, bring in artists for gallery talks. Anything that is public program related falls into my area of responsibilities. And it's been a huge change. But it's been really exciting because after 10 years in the same place, I was I was just ready for something new. 
That sounds like a lot of work. (laughs) (laughs) It is, but, you know, it's very interesting. You know, when you're doing content curation or if you're researching and writing, as you are aware, or if you're teaching, your job never really ends. I mean, you might come home from campus or from the museum. You don't stop that constant thought process of what are we doing, how does this fit, whereas in this role now um, it's very, very hectic and it's uh, very fast-paced, but I don't have to bring it home with me, which is pretty delightful. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's cool. (laughs) And since you've already talked a little bit about your background, and let's just start talking about your general uh, interest in history. What are your general research and teaching interests? So I started out in the Atlantic world, specifically the French Atlantic. My dissertation focused primarily on the connections between West Africa, in particular Senegambia, France, the Caribbean, and Louisiana, colonial Louisiana in the 18th century, focused primarily on trade, both in human beings and in global trade goods that are circulating throughout this sphere coming not only from the Atlantic world, but also from the Far East during the early 18th century. I worked in that field for the first probably eight years of uh, leaving graduate school. And then in 2013, I had the opportunity to curate an exhibition called Purchased Lives, New Orleans and the Domestic Slave Trade, which took me a century ahead of the field that I had worked in previously into the 19th century and had great success in putting together an exhibition that looked at New Orleans as the site of the largest slave market in the antebellum United States. It's actually uh, something that's been interesting to me because I remember hearing about the Purchased Lives exhibit and I've been curious what goes into, from your perspective anyway, from the role that you played in it, what all went into creating that exhibit. It sounded like quite an undertaking because I believe it was it was a traveling exhibit, right? It didn't start out as a traveling exhibition. It started out as a temporary exhibition at the Historic New Orleans Collection and to put together a really well done show. It takes at least two years. So you start with the same kind of process that you would start when you're writing a book. It's lots of background reading, reading into the historiography, doing primary source research, and trying to understand what questions you want to ask and how you want to present the narrative. One of the challenges in this exhibition and in any exhibition really dealing with the lives of enslaved people is how do you find that balance between telling their stories and the reality of the documentary source and the documentary record that is primarily produced by the enslaving class, right? And so to put together an exhibition like that, you're, you're thinking very critically about telling people's stories and making sure you are relaying the personal experiences of the men, women, and children who were enslaved and using the source record in creative ways. So we went through um, at the Historic New Orleans Collection, the first thing you do is you say, okay, what do we have in our archives that can help us tell this story? And the collection is it has tremendous resources in um, paper-based objects. So there are slave sale advertisements, auction advertisements, correspondence, um, watercolor, 
depictions, printed engravings, things of that nature. But I really wanted to broaden the scope, and so we brought in um, loans from the National Archives. We had original slave ship manifests from Norfolk, Virginia, from Maryland. We borrowed objects from private collectors, including objects that spoke to the kind of brutality of the slave trade and also resistance to the slave trade. We borrowed a six pound iron collar that was used that had bells on either side um, that was used um, as punishment for, for running away. And we brought in, to the best of our abilities, the voices of the enslaved. And we did that through not only the use of antebellum slave narratives, but we also used the WPA slave narratives. There are more than 2,300 interviews with former slaves that were conducted in the 1930s. They're all housed at the Library of Congress. They are not without problems because many of the interviews were conducted by white Southerners and are often presented in a way where the questions are very leading. And as you might imagine, formerly enslaved people might not have been as forthright as they might have been with someone else, with a white Southerner. Right. So we, we, did, we did try to bring in the voices and experiences of the enslaved through narratives, through the treatment of people's voices as objects within the galleries. And then we also, I wanted to make clear the economic impact of the domestic slave trade, not only in New Orleans, which is known as this, you know, bustling cotton port in the 19th century, but also within the South and within the American economy as a whole. So we did that through bringing in artifacts related to the banking in industry, the textile industry, the insurance industry, and maybe the most surprisingly the healthcare industry because there were several clinics in the city of New Orleans that derived the majority of their business from slave traders who were bringing in enslaved people to get them well after they had traveled either by boat or through a slave coffle, you know, hundreds and sometimes thousands of miles when they got to New Orleans brought them into Turo Infirmary, for example, to help them get well so that they could make a higher profit on them. And those records still exist in the city of New Orleans. So we were able to kind of bring together a really diverse assortment of objects, put them on display. The show opened about two years after we started visualizing and I started curating it. It turned out to be the most popular exhibition the Historic New Orleans Collection had done in 50 years. It was, it was well-timed. It was at a moment when people in the United States were asking a lot of questions about how did we get here. It was on view when Dylan Roof went into the church in South Carolina and murdered church parishioners. It was on view when people were in the streets protesting police brutality, and it was also on view just after 12 Years a Slave won an Academy Award. And I think that kind of all of those facets pushed people, not only tourists, because the Historic New Orleans Collection is located in the French Quarter, but a lot of locals to reach out and try to better understand this complicated history that we have in the United States in order that they might understand some of the continuing racial injustices that kind of plague our country. 
Now, can you talk a little bit about a little bit more about the process? Because I think when a lot of people think about historians and the work that they do, they think about a, right. a lone figure sitting in dark archives doing solitary <laughs> research, <laughs> and uh, and then you write your own manuscript or put you know put together your own article, and right. then bam, it's the project, it's the product of your solo research and all of your hard work, mm-hmm. and um, and with that's not always the case with historical projects, even books and articles, but with something like an exhibit, I mean, there's so much collaboration and there has to be some give and take, especially with very controversial topics. I don't know how much contestation there was within this topic itself or, or how much collaboration, but I'd like to hear a little bit more about that, uh, just to see you know, how, how you worked with others, if there was any pushback, even within the group as you're originally starting to put together this um, this exhibit and then it sounds like reaction has been overall positive. Let me just give you a little bit of background on the historic New Orleans collection, and this is a, a huge topic that you're <laughs> asking me <laughs> sure. to address. I don't want to. I will, <laughs> I will um, try to break it down a little bit. So, the historic New Orleans collection, just to give you a sense, is a privately endowed nonprofit institution whose mission is to preserve, promote, and disseminate the history and culture of New Orleans, of Louisiana, and of the lower Mississippi Valley. In their 50 years of operating, they had never mounted an exhibition on the subject of slavery. In the city of New Orleans, which is a majority black city that had the transatlantic slave trade began there in 1719, and they were, as I mentioned, the largest slave market in Um, the antebellum U.S. They had discussed slavery within the context of broader topics in exhibitions. And so this was really going out on a limb for them, even though it shouldn't have been in 2013 when I started working on this. The way we ended up doing it is we were approached by the Library of Virginia and the University of New Orleans to collaborate on a symposium on the subject of the domestic slave trade. They were looking to get NEH funding to hold a conference that would be simulcast with the first part of the day taking place in Richmond as representative of the kind of point of departure for the domestic trade in the Upper South. Um, So the first half of the program was going to be in Richmond, the second half was going to be in New Orleans, and they were going to bring together, you know, really prominent scholars like Ed Baptist and Walter Johnson and Charles Dew. They were going to, and Adam Rothman and all of these other amazing scholars, to have kind of a public conversation about the domestic slave trade and the internal migration. That was funded. The Historic New Orleans Collection became that second site. And the director at the time, Priscilla Lawrence, said, okay, it's time. We need to move forward. Can you do this? Do you feel like we have the resources to make this exhibition happen so that we have something on view when we host this symposium in 2015? And I said, yes, absolutely. So as I mentioned, the first thing you do is you start researching the topic. You come up with some sort of narrative that you want to communicate to people. Then you go into your own collections to figure out what you what you have. And then you work with institutions, private collectors, and other lenders to pull together objects that help you fill narrative holes. 
once that's all done, of course, it's a very similar process of like uh, of research and writing. You know, you're you're writing the exhibition text, the catalog text, the label text, and that's kind of the part that is very similar to being in a university system. What's different is at some point you are going to have very public interaction with the content that you're writing. And that's not going to be limited to the audience of, you know, maybe a couple dozen or a couple hundred people who are your academic peers. These are going to be people from all walks of life who will come in and experience this content. There is an intermediary that I and the collection were very concerned about, and that is the frontline staff at a museum. When I was working on this show, there were a lot of people concerned with the public's reaction, making people uncomfortable, being made uncomfortable themselves. And so what we did is we devised a four-part intensive training program for our docent staff and our volunteer staff because to be perfectly frank the docent staff at the historic new orleans collection and in many many museums is predominantly white and predominantly older mm. and often women right so we had docents anywhere from 25 years old to 85 years old and i think there were two African-Americans out of maybe 20 people, if you count the docents and the volunteers. And so we had a lot of really difficult conversations. We started off with kind of an overview of the domestic slave trade, and then we used three different books, much as you would in a graduate seminar, to promote discussion. We used 12 Years a Slave, Walter Johnson's Soul by Soul, Life Inside the Antebellum Slave Market, and then the third one we used was a book called Help Me to Find My People, The African-American Search for, for Family Lost in Slavery. I can't remember exactly the subtitle, but that's by Heather Andrea Williams. We used these three books to form the baseline of a broader conversation about race, about New Orleans, and about components that would be present within the exhibition so that they could understand the context and feel comfortable interacting with visitors. And I have to say, it was transformational for several of the people on staff who had um, longstanding beliefs that were seriously challenged okay. through this training. And ultimately, the experience of training the docent staff led to a good visitor experience you know they needed to understand that they didn't need to have all the answers you know sometimes that's very hard for people working in a museum especially a history museum to say you know I'm not sure let me let me find out they but this is such a sensitive subject we didn't need people guessing right you what? don't want to punt on that kind of thing no you really don't and you know the success of that show led to it being funded through the National Endowment for the Humanities to become a traveling exhibition. And Rob, that's probably where you saw, you know, yeah. through Facebook posts and whatever. And it ended up going to um, the Alexandria Museum of Art in Louisiana, not in Virginia, the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis, and then the Bullock Texas State History Museum in Austin. And 
It has completed its tour and more than 120,000 people have now seen the exhibition and there have been significant related developments in the city of New Orleans that have grown out of that exhibition and the conversation that it sparked here locally. Yeah, and that makes an interesting point because as you mentioned a lot of academics we write for very small audiences but public historians in many ways are writing for a much larger audience now you're not writing necessarily a book or lectures or something mm -hmm. like you know a professor at a university is you have a huge impact though on the way large groups in the public are going to perceive history and so in some ways that's i mean that's a very influential and a very important position to have and so does that how much does that keep you up at night or does it or does it even oh, wait, absolutely Absolutely, it does. Um, you have a huge responsibility to kind of get it right. You know, yes, you have a broad audience when you do public history, but just because you do an exhibition doesn't mean anyone will come or anyone will be interested because True. it all has to do with the topic that's chosen, the timeliness, your location. You know, we're fortunate in New Orleans that we are a major tourist destination, so we have a lot of foot traffic. And people tend to find New Orleans, right or wrong, exotic and interesting. And so there is a level of interest in history here that doesn't exist everywhere. Added to that, New Orleanians, oh, they love to talk about themselves. They love <laughs> to hear about themselves. They love to see themselves reflected in you know, lectures and on TV. And this is not a bad thing for historians. This is like yeah. bread and butter, right? Right. But absolutely, there is a lot of pressure. And I think that is part of what has held a lot of cultural and historical institutions in the city back from addressing some of these more challenging topics because there's a fear of what the reaction will be. And have you encountered either in New Orleans or any of the other locations where this, this particular exhibit traveled to, did you ex experience any negative feedback? I mean, I, I imagine there would be some level of people who grew up believing one thing and then being exposed to something different there's always going to be a little bit of jarring there but did you encounter any you know organized pushback or resistance or backlash or now, anything like that you know it's so interesting in that we expected that there would be pushback um, i think we received when it was at the historic new orleans collection of a total of two phone calls from people who were very disappointed that we were giving this subject attention. Why, why are you focusing on this when there's so many other good things that we could be talking about? But that was two people. And we really did not have any of the pushback that we anticipated at all. And I can say the same was true of other sites. Now, I don't know that the exhibition would receive the same reaction right now in New Orleans that it did when it was on view in 2015, because in the interim, we have been embroiled in a very contentious debate, very public, very loud, very upsetting debate about the removal of Confederate monuments. And New Orleans has become a rallying point for some of the white supremacist 
movements that you've seen in, you know, Memphis just took their some of their Confederate statues down. You saw it in Charlottesville. And New Orleans, city of New Orleans took down three Confederate statues and one blatant Reconstruction era monument that was dedicated to essentially the White League. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> Last year, we just took these statues down. And that has really fractured the community in a way that is very, very upsetting. It's kind of, you know, one step forward, two steps back. Um, And I think a lot of it has to do with not having had uh, a kind of productive conversation about the role of these statues, when they were created. You know, the general public doesn't have a good understanding of American history. Right. As you're aware. (laughs) Um, And so it's difficult to explain in sound bites, which is what our politicians were trying to do, the rationale for bringing these monuments down. And, you know, I grew up in Pensacola, Florida, which I sometimes refer to as the Redneck Riviera. And um, I grew up surrounded by a lot of offensive symbology, right? And one of the things that I love about New Orleans is it's so much more progressive. People are more willing to engage in a conversation. And it's not a place I ever thought I would see Confederate flags flying. And in the wake of the monument removals, we had um, white supremacists and neo-Confederates from across the country descend on the city of New Orleans waving these huge, huge banner-sized, you know, enormous Confederate flags. And you would drive by these intersections where the statues used to be, and you're like, where am I? And all of that is to say there's been so much bitterness here that I'm not sure that Purchased Lives in 2017 would have had the same reception as it did just two years earlier. It's funny that you say that because sometimes you just don't expect the the Confederate flag to show up where it does. I grew up in upstate New York, and within a mile of my house, in, in two different directions, there were there were Confederate flags, and it's just interesting because to those people, well, I know what it meant <laughs> to those people, but then you have some people that are arguing, oh, states' rights, um, and uh-huh. you know you have to look deeper at that argument about what those states' rights stood for. Rob and right. I have had this conversation multiple times, um, both being on the same sides of it. So it's just like it's really interesting where you find these symbols pop up and how people interpret them or how they justify them according to what it means to them. Right. It's interesting, and and you know one of the things that I think we should just mention that that grew out of the kind of public discussion that was had surrounding purchased lives and in editorials during that time and since then in the local papers is there is now a movement to mark these sites of the domestic slave trade in the city of New Orleans. There will be this year eight markers erected in the city at various locations that have been documented as linked to the slave trade. Those markers will be put up this year. And I think that is a really important outgrowth because when you're a city like New Orleans and you have so many people from all over the world visiting, a marker is not something you can choose to avoid. You know, it's it's not self-selecting like a tour or a book or an exhibition. 
Markers are physical objects that people see as they are walking to and fro. And so that's one of the things that has happened in New Orleans, um, I think, is a direct outgrowth of the conversation that was started through Purchase Lives. And it's also tied to this monument discussion because you're, you're putting something in in an attempt to contextualize history that has long been ignored. I think that's great because a lot of people were complaining during the whole debate about removing statues that, oh, now we're losing history. You're white. We're just going to erase history now. You know, right. like, like a statue was the thing that taught people anyway. But it's interesting that that was the argument. And now I like that they're trying to contextualize that because that was one of the big complaints yeah. is that, well, OK, right. we're erasing history, I, I guess. But the history that's being erased is like this one sided, very vacuous glorification of people who did on balance, pretty nasty things. <laughs> right. So and, it's and great that largely, they're being contextual, not contextualized now. Right, right. And were largely erected um, outside of the Civil War and Reconstruction era, but in later moments in time during Jim Crow and during the Civil Rights Movement as a reminder of white power in mm-hmm. New Orleans. Exactly. And if you're if you're only looking to public displays to teach you history, then there's a major problem, (laughs) you know, because public displays come and go. I mean, the most obvious comparison during the start of this whole debate about, you know, um, why are you erasing history? Why are you tearing down these statues was the famous painting of the removal of King George's statue you know, in 1776. We still know who King George was. We still know what the American Revolution was. Right. We still know who, you know, George Washington was and what that revolution was about. We don't need a statue dedicated to the former king to tell us, to remind us what that history is. And even the engravings themselves um, and the plaques that were on these monuments, um, the need to actually revise if you're going to keep those monuments up and use them as a teaching moment. Because it's not really teaching history, it's commemorating something very specific. And that's the part of the conversation that tends to get looked over when there are these very emotional reactions to what's happening. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's been an interesting time to be a public historian in the city of New Orleans with the monument discussion and and just kind of the general tenor of things in the country right now. People are really on edge. You know, I am a white woman who has done a lot of work on the domestic slave trade and slavery in the 19th century, and that's a, it's a complicated position to be in as it should be a complicated position to be in, but it's been even, I think, more challenging in the last year because people are really on edge and a lot of feelings are inflamed. So it's it's been an interesting time. Do you think this tension that you're talking about is going to lead institutions like the New Orleans collection to just put a halt on these types of projects for a while, just let, yes. let things cool off? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Yeah. When I was at the Historic New Orleans Collection, and, you know, it it is a one, it really truly is a wonderful institution. But when the monuments discussion started heating up, the staff at the Historic New Orleans Collection was told they could not engage in any way Hmm. on the topic of the monuments. And that meant they were taking a stand of silence and treating this topic differently from any other topic in Louisiana history. Um, And it wasn't just the Historic New Orleans Collection. It was places like the Preservation Resource Center, um, some of the local universities. I heard murmurings about people not wanting to engage. And this perpetuates 
the problem of not understanding the context of those monuments and those moments in time, because the voices who have the power to contextualize are in some ways silenced. And that, you know, that's, that's not healthy for our city or our country. And it was very interesting to me. I know our, our mayor, Mitch Landrew, who kind of spearheaded this monument removal process, after they had all come down, he made this phenomenal speech. I mean, whoever wrote that speech really got it. I mean, he had a lot of input from historians and people who really understood the background. But that speech was delivered too late. Um, it got all sorts of national media attention. New York Times praised him, and people thought, oh, they're really doing things right in New Orleans. But that speech was delivered after the rawness had been created on both sides. It should have been delivered, you know, when we first started talking about removing monuments. But instead, we what we had in New Orleans, and I think this has happened in numerous places across the country, is this kind of institutional silence because of the fear of getting involved. And that's an aspect of working in museums and, and uh, working in public history that is very, very difficult, is that when you work for a museum, you are generally supported through donations and there is a need to keep your donor base happy. And that can impact the kinds of stories that institutions tell. Yeah, and that makes sense. Shifting gears a little bit. So let's move on to your current position. So okay. you are currently the, the curator of programs for the New Orleans Museum of Art, correct? Right, yes. Okay, and what, is, what does that job look like? How, does it, how is it different from your other job, and you know, what do you do at that museum now? Well, this is a position that was just created in 2017, so I'm the first to hold this position. And the idea was to bring someone in who could really understand the local New Orleans community and the various demographics here and had worked with a lot of different community partners in the past so that they could strengthen essentially their relevancy in their programming um, and try to bring people into the museum who perhaps have traditionally thought the museum was not for them. And so my job is to look at what the museum had been doing in the past, see where we could improve upon that, and kind of evaluate how to move forward with programs that are interesting to the local population. Because unlike an exhibition where you're going to have a lot of people from, from all over the world who are visiting the city, when people come for a lecture or they come for live music or they come for um, a film series, they're generally local. And so that has to be understood when you are working with a curator of contemporary art or a curator of photography to put together programs that are interesting to the, the New Orleans population. So for example, I recently worked with um, Russell Lord, who's the curator of photography at the New Orleans Museum of Art, to develop programs around an exhibition called East of the Mississippi, 19th century American landscape photography. And we brought in the nationally known musicologist Nick Spitzer, who runs the program on NPR um, American Roots, to kind of talk about music and the development of music east of the Mississippi. and how the landscape changed over the course of the 19th century and what that meant for music and the growth and development of musical genres. Um, so trying to think creatively about 
bringing people into a, an institution that is a traditionally a fine arts museum, but that wants to really be more than that. They want to be a center for community and the convening of cultures in the city of New Orleans. And so that's what I try to do is create, it's essentially curating programmatic content that makes sense for our collections, for our exhibitions in a way that really connects with the local population. And so it sounds like this is going to incorporate a lot of different types of skills, communication and all that. How do you, the skills you learned as a historian contribute to this position? Well, you know, one of the things I don't, I really don't know very much about art, uh, just to be very frank. Okay, um, do I. <laughs> but, but the, 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 the strengths that you have as a historian in understanding how to learn quickly about a subject and do the kind of quick yet deep dive that you understand at least the general vocabulary and then working with people who are experts to pull those threads and go in different directions. I don't know if that makes any sense at all, but it's it's this it's some of the skills are the same. It's the the reading and the listening and the analytical skills that you have as a historian that help you to figure out what might be an interesting program. Skills perhaps not learned as a historian that are very important are um, organizational skills. Half of my job is probably the logistics. Uh, we do this series called Friday Nights at NOMA, New Orleans Museum of Art, and each Friday night we have three or four simultaneous programs and we do that 45 to 48 Fridays out of the year in addition to weekly gallery talks, talks with curators, artists workshops. Just keeping on top of the logistics is a lot of what I do at this point. Now I imagine you have some sort of a staff working with you or are you responsible for every aspect of the logistics? You know museums tend to be fairly lean and mean <laughs> groups. Yeah. Um, so it's primarily me. Unless you're dealing with children and family programs, uh, there's a, a separate staff member who deals with, you know, like summer camps and studio art making classes for kids and literacy programs and things of that nature. If it's an adult program and it's a public program, it's Basically, me, A to Z, from running the um, projection system in the AV booth in the auditorium to putting out signs to talking through, you know, ideas that you might have to kind of brainstorm around planning for an exhibition program. Wow. <laughs> That's, uh, so you wear many hats in this position. Yes, and when you work in a museum, you generally tend to wear many hats because museums tend to be underfunded. I don't know if underfunded is the right word. They they tend to put their resources into collections, and that's the right thing to do. They don't often have the resources they'd like to have for personnel. So especially at a smaller museum, at the Alexandria Museum of Art, for example, in central Louisiana, I think they have a full-time staff of like seven people and they do you know three traveling exhibitions a year and they have permanent collections and they do programming and it's just <laughs> it's 
you kind of live at the museum when you're in a small museum. I'm fortunate in that I'm at a kind of medium-sized museum. We have about 70 people on staff. With your career going through the Historic New Orleans Collection and the Museum of Art and all of that, what suggestions do you have for history students that are looking to go into those types of fields? Are there certain... Do they generally prefer MAs over BAs, PhDs over anything else? Are there general trends that you've noticed that might be useful for students interested in pursuing these types of careers? I think for the most part, a PhD is not necessary unless you're going into a role where you are a curator or historian. Um, there are lots of other opportunities, in, and when I say curator, I mean a content curator. There, I absolutely don't need a PhD to do the job that I have right now. I did in my previous position. But I think that what I would suggest is for people to be open to opportunities that they didn't necessarily see themselves taking when they started down the path to public history. It's a fairly competitive field but certainly not nearly as competitive as the academic job market, for example, as you both probably are aware. Um, and I think, you know, sometimes in the museum world, you might have to take a job that's not exactly the fit that you're looking for. Um, but once you're in, there tend to be opportunities to move around. Uh, before we wrap up here, Erin, do you have anything to recommend for us today? Well, I think one of my all-time favorite resources as a historian is the um, Transatlantic Slave Trade Database, which is now called slavevoyages.org. Um, I found that tremendously useful. I don't know if you guys are familiar with um, that database. Yes. It's, uh, yeah, it's based out of Emory, and it provides hard statistical data quantitative data on more than 35,000 voyages made from all over Africa to all parts of the Americas from the 16th century to the late 19th century. Obviously, it doesn't include every single voyage that was made uh, because not all of those records have survived and not all of those records were intended to be kept in archives. But it, it has proven incredibly helpful for me on numerous occasions when you're trying to quantify the volume in terms of people shipped to different areas in the transatlantic slave trade. Yeah, that is an amazing database. I had a colonial Latin America class that I assigned students to access that database, mm -hmm. choose any of the voyages listed there, yeah. and try to uh, recreate as much of that voyage as they could. So you right. know, basically tell me, where did it come from? Where is it going? What do you think these slaves were going to be? What tasks were they going to be given when they got to where they yeah. were going? What were the ship conditions like? I basically asked them to recreate in the voyage as, as well as they could. And it, it it was a really interesting topic. It's very tragic, obviously, and it's, right. it creates it's it's hard to look through that database. But it it, it is an, an an excellent resource. I don't know if you saw Slate magazine. I think it was at one point did an animation based on that, where they had a map of the the Atlantic world, and it was animated. So over time, you would see each voyage going across from where it yeah. left. Yeah, yeah, I did see that. And it was just, that. it was amazing how at the beginning it was just a little trickle. And then, you know, yes. once you get to the 18th and 19th centuries, it just turns into this flood of ships yeah. heading across yeah, the, into remember, the new world. 
I remember seeing that and thinking, oh my God, look at Brazil. Exactly. Yeah. It, it really brings home the idea that, yeah, not all slaves went to, you know, the American South. <laughs> the vast majority no, of them went elsewhere did. and had completely right. different experiences than what we're used to. All right, uh, James, do you have anything for us today? Sure. It's actually quite a divergence from the serious topic that we've been talking about. <laughs> but um, for myself and Rob, I think, you know, we're pretty similar age. If anybody remembers the 1990s and Tanya Harding and Nancy <laughs> Kerrigan. I vaguely um, remember the 90s. <laughs> yeah, I've uh, I've been talking about this quite a bit. I just saw the movie I, Tanya the other night, which is a really interesting movie. And from a historian's perspective, is pretty interesting too, because you have what's known. You still have what isn't known, some of the facts and some of the, the testimony given to the FBI. And you have various accounts that, sometimes align and sometimes contradict and the movie doesn't really come down on either side of the debate and doesn't really you know try to answer the question of what did Tanya know how much did she know but it's really interesting because it tells the story from her perspective and then the perspective of her ex-husband and recreates these interviews with various people involved so with Tanya's mother with um, Sean the guy who saw himself as her bodyguard and what you come away with is that there's a certain truth as far as what Tanya sees as truth. And it's truth related to her experiences, Mm -hmm. her understanding of herself, and her understanding of her place in the world and how the world has treated her. And the New York Times recently did an interview with her. Her name is Tanya Price now, but it did an interview with her. And what comes out of that interview is exactly the same thing. She's not really offering additional information on what happened. She doesn't really go into the extent to which she she knew about or participated in the attack on Nancy Kerrigan. But what comes out of the conversation is her truth and what this means to her and why this might have happened, but more in relation to herself rather than Nancy or the attack itself. So it's really interesting because it plays around with this idea of truth and personal truth and emotional truth versus fact, as well as, you know, what did happen in history and how we perceive it. So there, you know, there are people that still have this memory of Tanya Harding standing over Nancy Kerrigan, having bashed in her knee or of uh, Tanya Harding's husband having done it, when in fact the two of them were not the ones who carried out the attack. So, you know, it's a bit, not necessarily a lighter topic than what we've been talking about today. We're talking about one human being attacking another, or orchestrating attack on another, but definitely more recent, and, and it does bring up some ideas of our interpretations of the past, even the recent past. Yeah, this seems to be kind of the perfect moment in recent history to start talking about alternative truths and all of that. <laughs> yeah, emotional truth versus factual truth. So yeah. what feels true to me? What what was my experience and how did I feel during this experience? Because not to make light of it, because if you interpret something in one way, but that's not really how it happened, then think about um, so a lot of the oral histories that you get from World War II and listening to the experiences of a lot of the American military personnel that were in the Pacific theater, you know, a lot of the things that they remember sometimes align with their experiences, but sometimes align with things that they weren't present for and are based on what they read about in the papers. And some of the historical accounts of what actually happened in World War II, they don't agree with because it wasn't their personal experience and it wasn't an experience that they actually lived through. It was somewhere else in the war. So it's very difficult for them to come to terms with the fact that this might have happened or this was actually the factual truth of what happened versus their experience of what happened. Okay. And my recommendation is going to be even, I mean, again, yours isn't necessarily lighter, but (laughs) 
Mine is probably the lightest of them all. As we all know, anyone that's been paying attention to the news lately, there's a new book out called Fire and Fury, which is all about inside interviews with people that were around Donald Trump while he was running for president and in the early days of his presidency. One interesting thing that came out of the publication of this book, which is not the topic of what I'm talking about here, but... It shares the name Fire and Fury with another book that was published about 10 years ago, which was on the Allied carpet bombing of Germany back during World War II. And evidently, there's been a lot of mix-up in people going to Amazon looking for the, tr- the book about Donald Trump, The Fire and Fury. And this guy, a historian named Randall Hansen from the University of Toronto, who published this book about 10 years ago, said that one night when he was kind of hearing about all the discussion about Fire and Fury on the news and all of that, he thought, oh, that's amusing. It's in the same name as my book. So he just went to Amazon just kind of on a whim and saw that his book was suddenly at the top of all of the history charts on Amazon because so many people (laughs) ordered the wrong Fire and Fury book. And so he's now wondering if he's going to have to pay royalties to Steve Bannon and Donald Trump because of all this chaos. But anyway, it's just an interesting little side note that uh, people got the wrong book when they were order, trying to order the new book on Donald Trump. And they end up with a book about carpet bombing civilians in Germany back during World War II. All right. And with that, uh, thank you for joining us today, Dr. Greenwald. Sure. Thanks for yes, having thank me. Thank you very much. And thank you all for joining us today. As always, if you have any questions or comments on this podcast or suggestions for future episodes, please send me an email at snhuhistory at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at filibusterhist. For James Fennessy and Aaron Greenwald, I'm Rob Denning. Later!